Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. Our guest this week is Hannah Westland, who is publisher at Serpent's Tale, which is an independent publisher based in London, uh, concentrating on fiction. She was really interesting about sort of very big macro um, trends within the industry, but also spoke to us about her early career, her entry um, into the literary world. She actually started off um, as an agent and then went on to become a publisher. So we had a a good granular discussion with her. Lots of uh, really useful advice and everything from money to best practice for writing a novel. And we really hope you enjoyed the episode. Super. So, Hannah, can you tell us first of all a bit about you know your early career and your entry into the, the literary business? Absolutely. It were? Um, I had, I think, probably the luckiest start in publishing of anyone I know. So, I uh, my first job in publishing began at the end of two thousand and two, um, when I had graduated a couple of years before and. Um, was desperately trying to get into publishing, didn't know anybody, didn't really know that work experience was a thing that people did. It was already a big thing back then, not quite as big as it is now. Um, so I just wrote to all the literary agents in London, as well as lots of publishers, and just said, why don't you give me a job, please? Had you been studying English? Or? I studied English yeah. um, at Leeds University, and the, but I came out of my degree... My uh, The degree at the time, then, I don't know if it's still the case in Leeds, but it was very theory heavy Mm. so I came out of it feeling that literature had been kind of thrashed to death by theory and ideas and I was really not keen to stay anywhere near academia so it took me a while to get that out of my system I went and travelled the world and read loads of novels and rediscovered my love for them basically yeah I can I can read a novel for like six months no yeah it's funny it sort of works for some people but for me it really was wasn't how I wanted to engage with literature so it's a good lesson really in knowing that if I wanted to work with books it was not going to be on the academic side yeah. um, and were you were you do you sort of have more of a draw towards you know being an agent or, or well, going to publishing or just, it, at the time it was just whatever foothold I can get and I didn't really know agents existed until I started trying to find out how the industry mm. operated because they were it sort of, I suppose sometimes people still think they're quite shadowy, but then lots of them didn't even have websites and, mm. you know, it was really hard to find out about them. I just wrote to anyone that I could find an address for. I didn't really hear back from any publishers. Um, but you, I, what, was your, what was your sort of source book for this, using the Writers and Artists The Writers yearbook. and Artists Yearbook, yeah, which I think I got out of my local library. Okay. And that was the only way I could find anything out, really, back then. There was not much on, not as much online. Yeah. Um, and one of the only people that wrote back to me was Deborah Rogers, who was the person who founded Rogers, Coleridge and White, okay. which is one of the top London agencies. Mm. Um, and it turned out that her assistant had announced he was leaving the day that she, my letter arrived, um, which is only an, an interesting part of the story, because if you ever saw her office, you'd realise that if my letter had arrived any other day than that, <laughs> it would have immediately got lost, because she kind of looked like she'd been burgled constantly. <laughs> sort of mound, decades-old piles oh. of paper everywhere. Where was the office? Uh, it still is in Paris Muse in Notting Hill. Okay. It's been there for about 30 years, I think. Um, Anyway, she rang me up and said, come in for an interview. And I went along not knowing anything about her and finding it quite hard to find anything out about her and arrived in her office, looked around the shelves and discovered that she was the agent for Ian McEwan, Peter Carey, Kazuo Shiguro, the Angela Carter estate, and Hanif Qureshi. The list just goes on and mm. on. Um, 
and somehow muddled my way through this interview and didn't kind of make her think that I was completely hopeless. I think she wasn't the most rigorous interviewer and tended to like people that she sort of got along with rather than mm. had all of the best qualifications. Um, and at the time, the, the, the main question I remember her asking me was, apart from us talking for a long time about what books we loved, was, you do know how to do email and things like that, don't you? Um, <laughs> and that was sort of the extent of my pract- the practical skills that were required. Right. So I started working for her as her assistant, and I, I was at RCW for 10 years, um, working for her as an assistant and for, also for David Miller, both of whom sadly um, died in the last couple of years, actually. But... But I, I, I got my education through the two of them and then eventually became an agent there. Um, is that a very established um, kind of career path from assistant to agent or is it relatively yeah. difficult to make the leap? It is hard to make the transition and the only way to make the transition is to um, take on extra, extra projects mm. in addition to all the work that you're doing supporting the agent that you're working for. So yeah. there's always this difficult time where you're kind of doing two jobs really. Mm. And the job, because those assistant jobs can be really sticky. Really sticky. Yeah, it's come really up in quite a few instances. It's like, you know, the way in, it's a sort of quasi-medial role. And how, yeah. When do you jump to yeah. being a grown-up? Yeah, know? and a lot of people, you know, I, it took me a long time to do it. And that was partly because I was working for two people who had the most extraordinary client list. So mm. working for those writers, even in a subsidiary way, was still incredibly stimulating and exciting. Mm. And the two people that I was working for gave me, as time went on, gave me more responsibility and I did quite a lot of stuff autonomously. So I'm glad that I had quite a slow process of standing Mm. on my own two feet because I think by the time I did, I I was beginning to know what I was doing rather than kind of jumping in at the deep end. So what kind of, um, you know, if you were talking to someone who's in one of those kind of sticky assistant roles at the moment, what kind of things were you taking on that were kind of helping you learn the ropes and, 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 as you say, stand on your own two feet? Um, I suppose very often it was, you know, we were getting tonnes and tonnes of stuff in all the time, unsolicited manuscripts, and um, we would, as assistants, we would often be the first people that were sifting through those things and finding them, and very often our senior colleagues wouldn't really have time to engage with mm. them unless they were clearly really good straight away or they kind of had something that was going to make a direct line to them. So it was those sorts of things that interesting but needed some work mm. that would often could sort of land on your desk and you could establish a relationship with that writer and try to help them improve mm. the work until it was ready. Um, so I think that's really what I started to do with a handful of people. And then when I had one or two things that I thought were good enough, I, you know, I, try, I went out and tried to sell them. I also had very generous senior colleagues who, when they felt I was ready if they were sent something interesting, said, look, why don't you have a go with this? And so they sort of gifted me projects that looked likely to succeed to help me. And we, we always try and ask um, Australian Discourse about money on the podcast. Yeah. So when you were starting off in that kind of role, were you being paid like a proper wage? Or? I was being, yeah. I mean, I, I, so it's 2002, and my, I'm happy to say what my, my starting salary was £16,000 in okay. 2002. Mm. And it gradually went up... Um, by small increments every year, and we also got a small bonus every year at RCW. I I um, think they really tried to make. I think that's still at the lower end of the, the living wage didn't exist at that point. I think the minimum wage did exist at that point. I think they had they felt that it was just about 
a living wage and at the time mm. it certainly was I mean it's all I had to live yeah. on and it was just about enough rent was a bit cheaper then but um, and so I think that has always been the policy at RCW um, and at the time I know there were a lot of other places that were paying you know 10 grand a year or whatever yeah, which yeah, yeah. W- just made that difference it wasn't enough quite mm. enough to live on I mean the other thing that when we've spoken to agents in the past is this whole issue of, of the slush pile you know yeah. the interest Kind of being twofold in that, um, you know, it's, it's presented to the exterior world as the, the democratic way in, but it always seems, you know, we always ask how many things mm. actually came through that route. Yeah. And also it seems quite interesting that these decisions which are, you know, essentially life or death decisions for an aspirant writer are often being made by very junior people, yeah. by people who are on their first thing. So I suppose on the on the first thing, when you were when you were agenting, did stuff come in that through the slush pile that, that became a book? Yeah. Um, I mean, the slush pile is a sort of different. Maybe a slightly it's such a broad term, yeah. yeah. And I think there is a quite a big difference between something that comes in where somebody says, um, "I've written this novel. I really admire your agency or you particular agent because <laughs> you represent X, Y, and Z. Mm. What I'm trying to do with my work is this," um, and they 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 make quite a specific targeted approach to an individual um, rather than something that sort of says dear sir madam here is this and I'm saying you know they're sending it to a hundred other agents and it's also probably terrible Um, so I think within the slush pile there are gradations gradations. and I think yeah and I think within the so I, I mean I can't speak for how it works at other agencies but I think at RCW there was a um, it was really important to pay attention to the slush pile and everybody had a story of the one or two things that they picked up that went on to do really well that sure. they found that way um, could you give some example oh god um, there are oh it's good I, I, I might have to just comb through while sure. we kept carrying on yeah. talking I'll see if I can pick out one or two I mean I, certainly I picked up things um, that came through that that I went on to sell, or I went, or I even went mm. on to publish, long enough after that I'd moved here. Did you find that when you were sort of, you know, building up your list, you know, yeah. just, just kind of build your career? Did you find there was a, a certain kind of person who you were looking for, or you know, was it was it difficult to be discerning when you're kind of doing that kind of early building? Uh, I was lucky because I worked at an agency that was quite. Um, that built built it, its reputation on quality. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't under pressure to be bringing in huge amounts of commission to justify my position. And that was a very, very privileged position mm-hmm. to be in and one that most young agents are not in. And so what that meant was I was on a salary rather than a commission-based salary. Um, Did you have any commission element? No. And I was only ever really a junior agent there, so that might have changed if I'd gone on further. And it would be well, well worth you talking to somebody... Mm. who's there now because sure. you know, it may, may have changed but um, so really my remit was to go out and find pe- young writers who would hopefully end up being the next generation of McEwen, Nishiguro mm. etc and there was a, a, an awareness at the agency that those people wouldn't necessarily command big advances at mm. the beginning of their careers so sure. I could focus on really high quality projects whether they be fiction or non-fiction I definitely realised quite quickly that trying to do fiction on uh, alone, which was sort of my 
original passion and my mm. of my main sort of reading area was going to be quite hard because it takes people a long time to write novels, it takes quite a long time to edit novels, it takes a long time to polish them and make them feel ready to be mm. published, whereas a non-fiction proposal can come together much more quickly and you mm. can sell it much more quickly. Um, so I ended up doing a lot more non-fiction than I thought I would, but it was all in that kind of narrative literary um, area. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, um, and you eventually um, left there and, and yeah. ended up coming here. How did that change come about? Had you sort of, had you wanted to come to a, to a publishing? Had you sort of done with being yeah, an agent? Yeah, it's funny because it's hard to remember exactly what I wanted when I first started out and got my first job. I think like most people trying to get into publishing, if I could say what my dream job would be, it would be to be a commissioning editor mm. on a literary list, publishing literary fiction. But when I landed at RCW, I was so happy there and so interested in the way they worked that I mm. kind of let go of that idea and was quite happy with the idea of being an agent for most of my career, if not all. Um, so I, I had not no intention of moving at all, but I in 2010... I was sub-agenting for a Canadian agent. I had a, a writer called Essie Dugan who'd written a novel called Half-Blood Blues, mm. which I sold to Serpent's Tale. Um, Were you still at RCW? I was an agent at RCW. Yeah. Um, yeah, one of the things we did was work with some American and Canadian agents selling their books into our markets, okay. which most agents do. Anyway, that book um, ended up being shortlisted for the Booker Prize, shortlisted for the Orange Prize. It won the Giller Prize in Canada. It was translated into about 15 languages. So it's a huge success. Mm. Um, and that all kind of happened at Serpent's Tale. Um, at the end of the, of the year of that happening, their, their publisher left. And so they were looking for a new publisher. So Andrew, my boss, I, I, I'd sort of landed on his radar at the right time. Mm. So he just approached me and said why don't you apply for this job? And I was really shocked because I thought, you do realise I've never worked in a publishing house. I've never been an editor, let alone a publisher. This mm. is clearly not qualified to do this job. Mm. And he said, well, why don't you apply and let's see what happens. Um, and it was a challenge I couldn't really say no to, even mm. though I was really quite happy in my, in my job at the time. Um, so I went ahead with the process thinking, well, if I get this job, I'm not really sure if I want it or not. But if I get it, I can't possibly turn it down because it's such an incredible opportunity. Mm. And if it all goes horribly wrong, well, maybe it will. But if I don't do it, I'll always wonder what it would have been like. Is it very unusual for agents to go on to become publishers or publishers to become agents? What's the kind it, of relationship It's more common to go the other way yeah, around. Yeah, we thought that way, yeah. yeah, so it's... Um, although that's changing a bit, I think. So it used to be that uh, publishers would have a long, successful career in publishing, and then when they got a bit older and they wanted a slightly freer lifestyle, not lifestyle, mm. but working in a big, certainly in a big corporate publishing house can be very, you know, your time is sort of much mm. more constrained, and an agent you can kind of define what you do and how you do it much mm-hmm. more in your own terms. So it became quite a familiar pattern that publishers in sort of mid-career would switch to becoming agents um, and not so much the other way around but I think as the agenting um, sector has grown and agencies have grown and more young people have started their careers in agencies there have been more examples in the last few years of agents becoming publishers because I think there's a pool of young people who rather than coming up through publishing houses are coming up through agencies and actually if you've if you've 
learned in an agency, then you have a kind of attitude to sort of going out and finding things mm. that can be quite useful in a publishing house. And what what is do you think the relative status hierarchy between publishers and agents? Who is who is envious of who? Oh, it's it's interesting because I think it sort of cuts both ways. Okay. Um, and having been on both sides of the fence, I think there are there are resentments on both sides. I thought it's quite interesting. I think that. Um, the extent to which publishers can be quite judgmental of a, publishers can think that agents don't do as much work as them, okay. and that's because the work of agents, a lot of the work of agents is largely invisible. It doesn't result in a, a book that you've produced at the end of the process of all the work that you've done, even though you can claim mm. a role in that book. Um, and also, a lot of the work that you do as an agent is carry around the different sort of um, pressures and problems and pitfalls of about 60 different writers in your head all of the time and that you're the first port of call for that person. So there's a sort of uh, mental load that goes mm. with being an agent but that's largely invisible to, to um, anyone else. And I think publishers can be um, not quite as aware of that as they might be. And again, on, on the financial side, how do the pay and publishing of an agent thing? Yeah, I, well, I think I suppose um, with agents, the the potential earnings are unlimited, and that's one of the the great um, appeals of agents. Because of the commission. Because of the commission, mm. yeah. So if you really if you focus on selling really commercial books, or the, you know occasionally literary books hit the jackpot, but mostly mm. if you want to make real money, then you're going to be looking at selling really commercial books, whether they're celebrity driven or just in very commercial genres you can make a lot of money um, in a publishing house, even if you get right to the top of the... I mean, you've got to get right to the top of the corporate tree to be earning in the hundreds of thousands, I suppose. Um, and uh, uh, anyone else in... I mean, I, I, can't, I can't speak to what the corporate pay structures are like. Um, certainly here, I think we have a, a really quite a fair structure of how people are paid, and there isn't a huge gap between the person at the top and the person at the bottom. And, mm. Um, we've signed up for the London Living Wage and so on, but there is still a limit to how much I can get paid, even if I do really well, which, yeah, would be a bit Could difficult. you tell us a bit about the, the Serpent's Tale story then, where yeah. you know, where it comes from as a, as a publisher and what it, what it aimed to do and where it is now? So Serpent's Tale was set up in the mid-80s by Pete Ayrton, who was a, a legendary, amazing, cool guy who retired a couple of years ago, who's... Um, inspiration really was that he felt that uh, not enough, British publishers were not looking around Europe and beyond the English language enough um, to all the interesting things that were going on in other um, literary cultures. So he made translated fiction be really central to what he was trying to do and be this kind of USP. But he also had a very dark sensibility. He was quite radical. He was quite political. So he published um, quite a lot of transgressive books. He was the first person to publish Welbeck in... Um, in English, he was the first person to publish David Peace, so he did publish some British and lots of American writers too. He published The Sexual Life of Catherine M. He had this very um, bold list of writers, you know, also writers from South America, from all over the world. What was his um, background before he set up? He worked, um, I think he briefly worked as a translator and he also briefly worked in political publishing in one of those very small left wing publishers, I okay. forget mm. the name. Um, so yeah, so that was his background, and, pol and politics sort of remained very central to his sort of ethos and 
uh, he also published kind of quite a bit of non-fiction on the list. Um, and then in 2007, um, Profile acquired Serpent's Tale, okay. and Serpent's Tale became an imprint of Profile. So Profile's still an indie, but it's a much bigger indie than Serpent's Tale so we, so we interviewed um, Laura Palmer at Head of Zeus oh, for yeah. a couple of weeks, just around the corner. Yeah. And she was saying that in the indie sector, the biggest is Favour and Favour, yeah. is it? And then Bloomsbury. Yeah. And then they're for... Well, I think maybe Bloomsbury, if you include all of their academic publishing and everything, it might be big. I think oh, it's bigger than Favour. Maybe the wrong way around. Yeah. Okay. And where do you fit into that? So we are... Um, we're less than Favour and more than Canongate. Mm. So I think our, I think Faber is about an eighteen million pound business, and we're about a twelve million pound business. So there's quite a big gap. And then there there are Canongate and Atlantic and um, Granta and so on are all sort of between five and ten. And then there are the tiny places. And there's the smaller ones. And, and apart from size, like in terms of character, yeah. how um, do Serpent's Tale? And profile kind of fit within the market. What kind of yeah. books do you? What, so what it's you interesting because it, it, profile and Serpent's Tale, in, in first look, seemed like a very weird marriage because profile, well, Serpent's Tale's always always had this transgressive, edgy reputation, and profiles always had this sort of. Profile's a non-fiction publisher. It's it's USP is sort of serious, good, clever non-fiction. It's sort of. Uh, sometimes describes itself or is described as a sort of radio four of non-fiction publishing. So things that would be book of the week, things that you would hear talked about on radio four discussion programs, you know, history, current affairs, popular science. That that, that that's and how profile. old is profile? How old profile is, is twenty two this year, right, I think. Okay. So a little bit younger than Serpent's Tale. Um, Andrew Franklin, who sets up profile, will be a great person for mm-hmm. you to talk to at some point. Um, he he can tell you the story in more detail. Um, so, um, profile is uh, yeah. I, I, there was a way that um, I quite liked it being described that somebody recently said to me, which is profile is like the Germany of the independent alliance. So the independent alliance is Faber and mm-hmm. um, Canongate and the small publishers who all work together um, and use the Faber Salesforce. Profile is the Germany of the alliance because it's very. It's got this very stable economy. We have this. We we have this very sort of. We always make our budget. We're really good at kind of... We don't take sort of undue risks. We publish a really solid, great list of kind of really impressive people. So I like to think that if Profile is the Germany of the Alliance, then Serpent's is the Berlin of, mm. of Germany, which I think actually works quite well. Cause it's much less mixed than a Schengen metaphor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Took me a while to get there. It, it works, <laughs> uh, which, is, which is crucial. Um, so Serpent's Tale has... Tra- so I, I guess one of the challenges really has been to how Serpent's Tale can kind of retain its edge while being part of a broader, lesser edgy mm. culture, but also try to sort of update whatever that, whatever that means and think about what we want to publish and, and whether um, there's a way of kind of um, publishing more successful books without kind of letting go of what's really interesting and that mm. we can find at the margins. One of the projects that I believe that you've worked on since coming to Serpent's Tale, which I was quite interested in, is the, the publishing of the, the sort of classics. I was yeah. wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, so that's n- largely led by my colleague Nick Sheeran now, but um, he and I have worked together on those books over the years. So s- soon after I joined, we realised 
there are a lot of books languishing on our backlist that were really quite amazing classics of world literature um, and we wanted to try and see if we could reinvent those and bring them to new audiences so we have mined I think we've been we've been publishing our classic series for about um, six years now and we've mined most of the backlist that we think we can reinvent and there are other books that are probably just a bit too small or a bit too weird mm. whatever but I but we, we kind of came about at a time where actually I think publishers were all waking up to the the fact that backlist there's more back value in backlist mm. than we might have thought bookshops were beginning to be more receptive to the idea of classics actually having appeal to mm. to audiences over these years there's been Alone in Berlin there's been Stoner there have been, they've been these examples of classics that have gone completely huge mm. and so I think everyone sort of was paying attention to that so most publishers relaunched a really attractive classic series and so mm-hmm. we, we did our own and it was entirely um, books that you had published originally it, mostly so we've, we have bought in one or two and we're trying to do that more we're trying to find little lost European gems or American things or British things that we can that we think somehow might capture some kind of zeitgeist I, I bought in an amazing American novel my fa- one of my favourite American novels of all time we published a couple of years ago called Jernigan by David Gates which is I thought could be the next stoner but it's about the kind of dying months of a crazy alcoholic's life over um, who's sort of letting everyone down and like behave kind of under the volcano sort of thing. Yeah, yeah exactly and it, but it's very funny and very very amazingly written um, and imagine the next stoner is kind of everyone's touchstone yeah and actually but it just turns out I think it was just sort of too dark and awful for people to really embrace mm. so I think I was I, I, I was sort of deluding myself slightly because I love the book so much but I'm still very proud that we published it mm. and more broadly where, what do you see the role as independent publishing doing? What's its kind of raison d'etre or its distinctions in, a, in an increasingly homogenised marketplace? Um, when I, um, well, I think in the last couple of years, the bigger publishers actually have got a bit better at doing things that traditionally independent publishers have done quite well. And they've realised um, it might just be a fashion thing or it might just be, I think, um, a broadening of, of the way that people engage with books and so more interesting things seeming possible. But I think um, independent publishers used to be, in a way, one of the only places where you could take risks on books that didn't seem obvious mm. um, because you had some belief that, not just that there would be a small market for them, but then there's a, there might actually be a bigger market out there for them that you know, you're, you're sort of trying to find. Um, but I think now, you know, a few years ago, you wouldn't have seen so many of the bigger publishers taking on translated books as you do now. You wouldn't have seen so many publishers taking on novels that are only 20,000 words long. But, you know, look at something like Max Porter's novel or um, that just a number of translated books that are coming out that are kind of interesting. I think... Um, there's not as much difference in a way between what the literary lists that corporate publishing houses are doing and what we're doing, which is quite probably quite an unfashionable view. And as an independent publisher, I should sort of say the big publishers are all really corporate, they don't mm. take interesting risks, and we're the only people that take interesting risks. But I don't really think that's totally true. In actually. terms of the, um, you know, the sales of books in the UK, what fraction of that belongs to independent publishers and 
What fraction of the mainstream? I don't know exactly, actually. The, you, I'm sure you could look up the stats on the bookseller mm. website. They're yeah. always publishing, you know, year on year they do, um, they do um, publish stats on that. Um, uh, so I couldn't say. But, uh, but I think we have a much healthier share of the market than in, say, America, where mm. it feels like they really are the huge behemoths and then there are kind of t- some very tiny, interesting presses, but it's yeah. really hard for anything sort of medium size there to survive. In terms of kind of um, bigger picture stuff, so what is the industry in the UK becoming more kind of American or, or is there kind of um, a resurgence of, of independence and a kind of, you know, it seems like Serpent's Tale have really, you know, done incredibly well and had some really high profile successes recently, you know, the Essex Serpent yeah. and, and so on and so forth. You know, is there, which way is the, is the UK market going in your opinion? I think we're in a better place than we were a few years ago. I think the the resurgence of Waterstones has been enormously important. What's happened there? Um, so a few years ago, before James Dorn was appointed to, to run the chain, um, it had just kind of gotten worse and worse and worse and um, was having been really such an important um, relationship, certainly for... Lit- I mean, for all... For all of publishing, but it, but it was the main chain that if you were publishing anything kind of literary, you needed support from Waterstones, otherwise it was very difficult to kind of make up a print run. And that situation had become, that I mean, the chain was in terrible financial trouble. Um, and then when James Daunt was appointed to, to run it, um, it took a while, it took kind of two or three years of him kind of turning the shops a bit more into like Daunt shops, but but not like door shops because those are dependent on mm. you know being only in very kind of wealthy neighbourhoods and catering to there a very are, literary crowd. There aren't enough knocking hills to go. No, around. exactly. Um, and so now I think that they, even though lots of you know there is always frustration that they don't support as many books as they, as you would like. It feels as if their stores are really working. They've redesigned them. They kind of they've. They support good books, but they don't try and support too many things. So, and they've just kind of got it right. And we have a very good relationship with them. I think it's fair to say that Waterstones are also quite sympathetic to independent publishers. So, in some ways, there is um, not an advantage, but it doesn't feel like a disadvantage being an independent publisher in terms of mm. whether Waterstones will pay attention to your books. Um, we certainly, that the success of the Essex Serpent was to do with many, many things, but the, the support of Waterstones was really the absolutely crucial thing. That Could you tell us a bit more about that book and where, yeah. it, where it came from? And how it all yeah, um, so, so it was Sarah Perry's second novel, and her first novel we, we published in 2014. And that did really well, that was, won several awards, didn't well, it? Well, it, it did, it did, we were really, really pleased with how it did. It was longlisted for the Guardian First Book Award. It won the East Anglian Book of the Year. Um, and it was very, very well reviewed everywhere. Mm. It got uh, people like Sarah Waters and John Burnside to saying it was one of the best debuts they've read in years, and so on. And and Waterstones um, picked it for their at the time book club, this summer book club mm. that they used to do. They they no longer do. So for for a very beautiful, quite quiet book, um, we we were really pleased with how mm. well that we'd done with it. But it was but by no means a bestseller. Established her nicely, and so on. Um, so then when she wrote The Essex Serpent, which was a much clearly a much bigger and um, uh, book that clearly could have a much bigger audience, 
Um, we just really decided to put everything into trying to make it a big book right mm. from the moment that we acquired it. And so what concrete steps can you do? If you, if you see a, a, a gem in the making, you think this has the legs to become a commercial success, what are the things that you can do to, to push it over that? Edge. Yeah, there's a there. I mean, there's lots, but I think the I think step one is that you all, as a company with one voice, start saying a year in advance, this book is huge. This book is going to be huge. This book is going to be huge. And I think if you can do that, not off the back of saying, and I was in an auction with ten other publishers and I paid two hundred grand for mm. it then you're already at an advantage because that I, I often, you often see publishers trying to use the fact that they won an auction to get a book to as a way of promoting it by saying, look, mm. everyone wanted this and we got it. I always think that when you see that, you think they've got hundreds of thousands of pounds riding on this book, they're terrified, they've got to make it mm. work. But when you don't have that... You, it, you, you, people just know that you're telling the truth. Cause yeah, there's no financial incentive exactly. for you to big up a book. Yeah. Although there is, certainly when it's explained to me, you know, if, and it, what an advance does correlate to is marketing spend, right? Because if, if a publisher has shelled a lot on that, then the incentive to recoup is... Well, they have to, yeah. So there's definitely, um, you know, if, if a publisher has paid a lot for a book, they have to spend a lot to make the book work. But we, as an independent publishing house, do not spend a lot on advances until we have a successful author, at which point we're in a comfortable position where we can pay. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you, as, as an independent, yeah. how does that, you know, both advances and, and promotional spend and so forth compare yeah. to, to what other people are paying? So I, I think um, our advances for kind of um, new unproven writers are quite modest. Um, I think that I, I hope they are a sort of reflection of our kind of cautious ambition. Could you have examples? Again, we always... At such a range. I mean, the, the smallest advance I've ever paid for a new novel is £2,000. Um, the biggest advance I've ever paid for a novel is for Sarah Perry's new book, but I can't tell you how much that was for. <laughs> but it was for it was for an amount that would be comparable to the big advances that big publishers are paying for their big-name authors. So we, as a successful independent publishing house, we can pay when we know that we have a writer who is successful, that we know that we can make their book work, but we can't take the kind of big risks based on guesswork. Hence you're trying to develop. Yeah, so the whole model really is to build people up. So with Sarah, we started out with her first book, we paid her a small advance, and each time, you know, we've built her up. Mm. And, um, and so, you know, we really, really believe in paying writers as well as we possibly can, but, but that has to be balanced by our, um, the fact that we're a small company and we can't mm. expose ourselves. To Is there a frustration then that if you, you build someone out a big success, then a big corporate can come yeah. and kind of pitch them? Yeah, and that used to happen all the time to Serpent's Tale, so... Um, People like Welbeck, Lionel Shriver, we published We Need to Talk About Kevin, and then she moved to HarperCollins. But it, it's frustrating, but it, it's also, you can't really blame a writer, I don't think, if they're, given a, if they're offered a cheque for mm. double the amount that you can pay them. Yeah. You know, it's, it's fair enough in some ways, but it is very, very frustrating. And definitely one of the things I wanted to do here was as, as we tried to build up a stable of writers who hopefully reliably are really successful, we are able to... Um, have a relationship with them that is worth a huge amount mm. but we're also able to pay them an amount that is you know not that is kind of in line with what they might be paid elsewhere and we are we are in a position to do that so 
In terms of um, sort of bigger picture movements in the industry, we've heard lots of people be a lot more optimistic than they would have been three or four years ago about kind of e-books versus, um, you know, physical books and the kind of changes in consumers' attitude, you know, just to books as objects. Do you have any sort of views about that as as an independent in terms of, you know, how you design your books? Yeah, um, so... You're absolutely. A few years ago, um, everybody was saying ebooks are going to, you know, eat us, and we're never going to be able to survive. Um, and actually, things have stabilised. So, in certain areas, ebooks can be a really, really big part of um, sales, and in others, they're really still very a very small part. In fiction, it kind of varies actually. So, commercial fiction is um, can be quite heavily e ebook um, driven. Um, literary fiction is a solid part of our sales will be ebooks but it's but it's almost like the ebook sales follow the success of the print book and so mm. what you really need to do is make the print book very visible and very um, successful and then ebook sales will follow uh, so I think the um, quality of book design and production has unquestionably gone up in the last few years and if you look around any bookshop just the books look lovely and mm. more money is being spent on making them look lovely um, and you know The Essex Serpent is a good example I think of a, a book that it felt people talked about in all the different things that we were hoping people would talk about one of the things that people talked about was the jacket and how mm. it sort of looked like a gift to give to people it sort of gave itself to, as a gift to mm. people because it kind of looked like that, that's what you wanted to do with it and that was a really, I think, a really key part of, it, of its success. Um, I mean, I, I, I always sort of feel slightly uncomfortable with um, the sort of, the conversation about the book as object becomes, can end up being a conversation about the book as luxury objects mm. and that's something that I, um, what I really want is for lots and lots of people to read our books but our books to be really good, mm-hmm. and I and I'm if that means that sometimes we need to produce really lovely. Which was special sort of initial Penguin mission, right? Exactly. Yeah. 30s, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. But I don't want to. I wouldn't want to end up in a position where we were publishing these sort of lavish, expensive mm. hardbacks that were too expensive for people to buy. But also, that actually, I think what holds people back from doing that is this balance between how much will people be willing to pay for a nice hardback versus. How much cheaper is the ebook? Mm. And so ebook prices are kind of fluid depending on what you think will put be sort of cheap enough that people who don't want to buy the hardback will buy it, but not so cheap. You know, so it's a sort of mm. balance between the two. And where does or how does the fiction non fiction split work for you? What what fraction of your business is, is that? So, so the actual Serpent's Tale non fiction is a very small part of our list. So okay. we publish sort of three or four books a year on our list that are non-fiction which have historically tended to be political or popular culture and still kind of in that area so last month we published a really great book by a guy called Matthew Collin called Rave On which was a he wrote a book for Seventh's Tale in the 90s about the rave scene and how the rave scene started in the UK and this was a book about what happened what's happened after 30 years and how rave culture's gone global and become a billion dollar industry so there's a sort of natural um, non-fiction book for us to do um, but but the profile business is almost entirely non-fiction. Okay. Um, and I would say Serpent's Tale is... Uh, it depends on the kind of year we have, whether we have a huge bestseller or not. But so, did, they, did they want to acquire Serpent's Tale so that they... Had a fiction. fiction game? Yeah. 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 
um, and it was a you know much much not, e- not easy but to yeah to acquire an established business rather than to try and set it up completely from scratch so it was easier. And do you um, <coughs> do you take submissions direct? Yeah. Okay. Because again, I think we when we spoke to Laura, as you say, said they they did do that. But again, that's something she said that a lot of um, big commercial publishers don't don't do. do. Yeah, mm. I think um, a lot of them in recent years have done like a month where they open their doors and say mm. you can submit. And I guess maybe for them, they're bigger. They have the more famous name, so they really they would get loads more. We get um, we get quite a lot, but we. Um, I kind of feel like basically if someone has the wherewithal to actually find out who I am, find out my email address and wants to send me something, then they're worth at least reading their email and seeing if it's something that I want to look at. So I'll always look at stuff that comes in. What kind of volume of stuff do you get? Uh, not not that much. I mean, it, also we get a lot that comes to our kind of info address. Sure. And so that sort of, um, a lot of that gets filtered because it simply isn't, but isn't stuff that we publish if it's kind of sci-fi or whatever. <laughs> Um, but I've in in the last couple of years I've picked up two writers who were publishing who just wrote to me direct and said who, who are so one is we're about to publish her second novel in, at the beginning of next year she's called Yelena Moscovich she's okay. a Ukrainian woman who uh, lives in Paris writes in English she she grew up in the Ukraine moved to America when she was ten then has lived in Paris for the last ten years. Um, and another is a young British writer called Susan Finlay who had been sending me drafts of things over the last couple of years I always thought she was interesting so I just kept reading her stuff and eventually she sent me something that I thought was good enough so and in you know when you've had this you know you're looking <coughs> at someone's material both as a publisher and earlier as an agent you're doing that that kind of taste test what what are you looking for I mean how instinctual is it or do you have yeah I was going to ask how you read like whether you sort of you know start from the beginning right way through or whether you kind of skip into different chapters and look at the ending I think the the um the letter people write to you is really tells you a huge amount and it and it will carry you further than if you if you read a letter that you think is really interesting and then the first few pages of the submission seem underwhelming it will carry you past those underwhelming pages into what might be more interesting beyond um, because I think that letter is hopefully a distillation of what it, it who you are as a writer that you're sort of trying to get across. Sorry, my voice is going a bit. Um, and sometimes the tone of it will kind of tell you <coughs> um, how interesting someone is. Someone that's like a real, and I'm t- mainly talking about fiction here because it's mainly what I do, but someone who's really serious about writing fiction, who really has thought about it and knows about it deeply and thinks about it deeply that should come across how seriously they're taking it and how seriously they're taking themselves should come across I think in that note and then in the work itself it's really hard to say because you know the the whole thing is I don't want a a list of books that are all the same Mm. I want a list of books where every single one is completely different because otherwise you don't want to be following trend no, I mean, everything fits, you know, every publisher. One of the ways you, when you're making a decision about what to publish, you, you'll say to yourself, oh, this is a bit Hilary Mantel, except it's also a bit this, but, and it's a bit that, and it's a bit that. So you're always making comparisons and following things that have gone before, but you're also always trying to say, but, it, but, but it's, complete, it's different, and this is why. Um, so there's a kind of quality of 
it's so hard to say what you're looking for. This is probably I bet nobody ever gives you a sufficiently good answer. And on the, the debate, <laughs> um, you know, in broader fiction writing circles between people who, who plot out a novel, who plan it, and those who kind of plunge in. Yeah. Do you have views on that? Uh, I've come across writers who do it every single different kind of a way and yeah. I couldn't say that one way is good and one way is bad it's just completely subjective I've got a writer who writes full drafts of things then rereads the draft and then bins it and starts writing again so it's sort of in her head but not the, the kind of original draft is not holding her back and that's, that's fascinating seems to work. That's so interesting um, I've got another writer who says that she'll spend three or four years with an idea in her head and it will kind of keep but she won't write anything down and then finally it will be there enough that really in a matter of months the whole thing will be written but it's been spending years kind of percolating in her head also um, done by the person who writes a whole draft yeah, and, it's like, it and then bins it yeah well and that, anyway that's so there are very very different ways of doing things I mean obviously I think if you're writing a crime novel it helps to kind of plot, plot the plot yeah. a bit beforehand um, and I think uh, but, uh, you know especially when you're when you're looking at early work from people often structurally it's not really there yet but if you feel like they've got an interesting way of creating characters or they've got <clears throat> some kind of way of looking at the world that's interesting that would be enough to make you think well actually all that all that structural stuff that can be learned. It's more about whether there's a kind of. And do you think that thing. they um, that an aspirant novelist should should aim to complete a manuscript before sending it out? Or? Yeah, I, I think it's quite. Um, it's quite hard nowadays. I mean, not not so much for, for with agent. Actually, agents would probably say complete a full draft too. Mm. I think yeah. um, that's definitely the message we've heard. Yeah, I think that the the thing is that you're not really an agent's not really going to be able to do something with your book until you've finished writing it other than provide a bit of encouragement which can make a big difference to a writer I know um, but really you sort of want to get get that initial excitement from someone whether it's an agent or a publisher once yeah. and if you sort of say here's 50 pages and then disappear for six months they're not going to be as excited the first time they read those 50 pages again I mean, one, thing, one, one thing I remember from you know being in my 20s and sort of starting out and, and trying to write fiction initially was getting, you know, you would get that excitement and then you know, that would be a kind of earth-shattering moment when you're an Aspen writer. But then I remember certainly what could happen is you could, you know, potentially kind of like years-long situation where you're going back and forth with an agent and stuff like that, nothing, yeah. you know, it can, it, it can almost... I, I, I hesitate to use the word exploit because exploitative, but you know, because people are so, it's so emotionally charged yeah. right, for the people. I think that's right. You can also, yeah, you can end up in situations where someone's expressed early interest, then you come back with a whole draft, they're kind of not so keen, but they don't, they sort of feel obliged to mm. provide some notes, but maybe yeah. those notes take a long time to come because they're not as excited and then yeah. you get frustrated. And right. then, so I think the more work you can present that's more as close to being potentially ready to go as possible the better because it's going to be somebody honest appraisal yeah and i think i think what i came away from was you know it's, it's ultimately a professional relationship right yeah. that you have with yeah I mean, do you have a few on creative writing courses and things like that as well yeah um so i think they can be incredibly helpful for people who um need structure and support some writers really need that and some writers don't so mm. I think if you are um, 
if you if you need that and you sort of want a process that's kind of kind of make you carve out time in your life to to get further along with your writing then they are really good I think there are um, some people who are really good at teaching writing and some people who are probably not as good um, I don't think that um, they can necessarily I, I think probably a lot of people who are never going to be successful writers do creative yeah. writing courses and that is perhaps a bit suspect on the other hand I think lots of people who are teaching on these courses are just trying to get by because they're not making enough yeah, from their writing thing, right? so the, the, you, top, I, the top practitioners aren't necessarily going to be the ones teaching yeah mm. well yeah but also that you know if you're if you're only earning tiny advances um, from your books and you need to supplement your income, mm. then maybe you'll teach and maybe the people that you'll teach you'll know that they're not that good. But you know that Hanif Kureishi comment where he was writing about so some description. Needed, um, it's like everybody needed therapy. Well, I think I think yeah, he was writing about some like awful human situation. He said, you know, I've not seen this much unhappiness since a creative writing course. Mm. <laughs> yeah. It's an in, it is an interesting phenomenon because when I first started out in 2002 there were not that many yeah. there was UEA and um, Glasgow and Manchester there were a few but there weren't but now it feels like every university has one yeah. and I think they are a sort of solid money making yeah. operation for universities but that sometimes that can genuinely be a really, mm. a really great path for a writer I have found people through going to those courses and talking to the students, and yeah. that's that's worked out well for me. But I've also spoken to a couple of writers who've really not only enjoyed the the courses, but then have found kind of like a the writing group that the yeah, yeah that's like really sustainable. Yeah, and a sort of final thing: the whole conversation about diversity in publishing and yeah. stuff like that. I mean, I think you know what what Cassie and I find interesting is, and part of the reason of the podcast is, you know, no one ever explains how it all works to you, and it is a a kind of confusing world to try and get into you know yeah. as you say there's more information now on the internet than there was what how do you see that conversation and that piece evolving yeah. in terms of you know the democratizing the way the way it's in yeah um so what i've been trying to do really over the last couple of years is just sort of listen as mm. much as i can to what people are saying problems and the obstacles um, and the limitations and the shortfalls are because I think um, it's really interesting how many people are standing up and saying actually I I found publishing really intimidating or unwelcoming Mm. and if if you're a person of colour and there's nobody like you around you that's very difficult and so on and I think um, trying to really listen to that and think about how that can be addressed um, is really really important. Um, as a small company, it's quite. Um, so we've always had a very, um, a very very good internship scheme, which is fully paid and two uh, two month placements for graduates. And we've always sought to find people um, that are from a diverse range of kind of applications and backgrounds as we can. Um, and I think we were quite ahead of the curve in doing that. And I think now all publishers are really waking up to trying to they're launching all kinds of different schemes. Yeah. Because we're quite small, we can't. There's not much sort of wide. There's not really like a big company wide initiative we can do on the on, on the scale that PRH and people mm. are doing, sort of changing their 
um, or attract sort of running much bigger kind of schemes that bringing in new people into their workforce. Um, but I think our internship scheme has always been good and I hope we'll continue to bring interesting people to us and help those people who have gone on to have jobs elsewhere. I really um, have one other question actually. Unrelated. Yeah, yeah. Um, the future of, of literary fiction, you know, yeah. this is the other thing that has come mm. up, you know, where where is that, as a publisher that, that concentrates on novels and so forth, where do you see that going and is it is it even a useful term to be using? Um, so there was the report recently that said literary writers are not making any money anymore, yeah. I think, that was funded by the Arts Council. And yeah, there have been a lot of scare pieces uh, over the past sort of six months, year. Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel that ever since I started, it, it has always kind of been the case that most literary writers haven't made very much money from their work, and the, the number who do is a very, very small number at the top, and there's always that statistic about the average earning of a published writer. Like you know, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I, I do think that's always been the case. I think what what has definitely changed in my over the course of my career is that the supplementary ways that writers could make money have, have diminished. So interesting that we're talking about creative writing courses is that has become a new way for writers to supplement their income where once they used to do lots of freelance writing. So mm. when I first started at RCW, I spent a huge amount of my time um, fielding commissions for right, not even well-known writers to do travel pieces, to do think pieces, to do cultural pieces, mm. for which they were paid decent amounts of money, and yeah. that amount of money would amount to an income mm. a- alongside a small book advance. And Those that was, the days. <laughs> that's the Scott. That's more or less. You know, it's very very hard to do that now. Um, so, and also, I think we have a. We have a, you know, there are fewer review pages, so it is harder to break people out. Um, but I'm not sure that it's a crisis. I'm not sure. I think there are really interesting writers being published. And, and as I said earlier, I think publishers are kind of taking more risks in terms of the kinds of works that they're mm. willing to publish than they were a few years ago. Um, so I don't think it's doom and gloom. I mean, I, I do appreciate that the... You know, the question of how one earns a living as a writer is a very, very vexed one. Um, and, you know, hopefully if the Arts Council do draw conclusions from that report, it will be that they do need to think about continuing Do you see an increasing writers. number of your writers writing for TV, like writing drama for TV? Because um, that's, you know, certainly in the States where yeah, it seems like novels yeah. are going. Um, well, yes. I mean, certainly, some of our American we you know we publish some American writers who do write who have always had that string to their bow. Attica Luck is one of one of them, um, and I think the kind of potential for TV adaptation of people's works again is also something that is um, hopefully happens for some people. Um, I hope that I hope that that is something that some of our writers will be able to go into. I do think it's quite a different thing, though. So mm. I think only certain writers will really let their style will lend themselves to TV writing. But maybe as it becomes a more of an established thing for people to do alongside mm. books, it will sort of become more natural. Well, thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed um, speaking to you, and, and I'm still I'm still stunned by the person who who throws who throws their first draft word. I think I'm ever going to get over it. Castia <laughs> hasn't been stunned since Patrick Kingsley told us he wrote a book in five weeks, which which uh, took us a yeah. while to yeah. get wow. it. Yeah, I'm still annoyed about that. <laughs> anyway, thank you. That was really great, and thank you. wishing you all the best. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Hello, it's us again with a swift update from our lives. Cassia, what have you been up to? I am not going to talk about the book because I feel that has become boring. So what I will do instead is moan about, <laughs> about a recent, um, a couple of commissions that I've sort of been on the very cusp of turning down just because the pay has been so bad. I think every freelance writer has a flaw. Cassia has forbidden me from saying who they're from. Yeah. Uh, but it's a, it's a marquee publication. We yeah. can say that. Yeah. And anyway, the money they're offering is... You can say, can you say how much they offer? It's a third of my floor. My, my floor is, is a fairly low floor. Yeah. And then this is a third. It's so low. As in the floor being the minimum that you would, yes. you would get out of bed for. Yeah, yeah. Well, not yeah. get out of bed. That's the phrasing Cassia uses with editors. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it, I, I almost had to keep on rereading the email because it's so low that it makes me want to cry. And then you sucked it up and did it. And then I, you know, womaned up and was like... I've got nothing else better to do with my anyway, time. Anyway, it is a, it, obviously a live debate there, so do do send us your feedback. Um, in terms of me, I uh, continue to What's work. What's your floor? Um, I'll tell you your floor. I'll tell you my floor if you tell me your floor. I'll tell you off the air my floor. That's no fun. Floor, floors are a discussion for another day, I think. <sighs> I feel a bit awkward now. Um, <laughs> uh, it, depends, it depends who it's for. There are people I would write for for small amounts of money. <laughs> You're dancing around the floor. Yeah, I'm. I'm dancing. Anyway, I have been um, slogging away like a proverbial galley slave on my book, but that's okay. Uh, I have touch wood a piece in the Paris Review uh, this week, uh, or yeah, on the, for their website, and a piece in the FT. Uh, and it seems now like the end in sight for the book is is almost. Like, When's it going to be published? When's published? Well, 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 meant to be in July as long as nothing goes wrong. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted as ever by me, Simon Aikum. And me, Cassie Sinclair. Our producers are Liz Davies, uh, Ed Kiernan and Olivia Crellin. Our music is by Jess Danheiser. Uh, Zara Hankia looks after our social media. And our graphic design is by James Edgar. And we're on all manner of social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes. We're on Twitter at Take Notes Always. And our uh, website. Our website. I always forget this. We used to have a script, but Cassia forbade that. Um, our website is alwaystakenotes.com. Uh, and as ever, please do leave us a review on iTunes. It greatly helps other people to find us, and who wouldn't want that? Thank you, and goodbye. <laughs>